Welcome to the latest episode of El Paso Talks, where the voices of El Paso are heard. Now let's welcome today's host. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not reflect the views or opinions of El Paso Community College or the University of Texas at El Paso. It has now been four years since a Trump-inspired white supremacist from a suburb near Dallas drove to El Paso and perpetrated what can only be described as the worst massacre of ethnic Mexicans in modern American history. The gunman, Patrick Crucius, managed to kill 22 people on that terrible day in August. A 23rd victim would die from his injuries approximately nine months later. By this point, it has been well established that the gunman was targeting people of Mexican descent. In the online manifesto posted by the gunman prior to the shooting, he clearly articulated his desire to kill Mexicans in order to prevent the, quote, invasion of his beloved Texas. And following his arrest, the gunman would openly admit to investigators that he came to El Paso with the express intention of killing as many Mexicans as possible. This past February, Crucius pleaded guilty to 90 federal charges in connection with the shooting and was sentenced in early July to 90 consecutive life sentences. Although the July sentencing marks the end of the federal criminal proceedings against him, he still faces state charges and the very tangible prospect of the death penalty following the state trial expected to occur sometime in either 2024 or 2025. With the federal sentencing completed and the state trial on the horizon, it's easy to succumb to the logic that some measure of justice will eventually be achieved. After all, the gunman is accountable at the most immediate level for the shooting. But there are others who also bear responsibility for what happened in El Paso on that terrible day in August, and four years after the shooting, it's not exactly certain whether the larger truth about why this tragic incident occurred will continue to be told. We'll be back in a moment to discuss the evolving narrative surrounding the El Paso Walmart shooting. You are listening to Vanguard Elements. Welcome back. My name is Aldo Mena, and I am the founder and director of Mexican-American Solidarity with Mexico. I am joined today by Ruby Montana, an instructor in the humanities program at the University of Texas at El Paso and an instructor at El Paso Community College. Ms. Montana also recently accepted a teaching position in the philosophy department at New Mexico State University. Uh, I'm also joined today by Martin Paredes, the publisher of El Paso News. Uh, Martin makes his living in the technology sector, providing online solutions to clients across the globe. In between his technology work, Martin has been writing about El Paso's political scene and public policy for over 20 years at this point. Uh, Martin is a proud Mexican national, originally from the El Paso Juarez area. And he is currently residing in the sunny state of Florida. We'll have to uh, circle back and talk about that at some point. But thank you both very much for being here today. Thank you for inviting us, Aldo. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you guys again. Yeah, no, it definitely is. 
it's been a while. So it's, it's nice to have this up and running again. Well, I'd like to start with a few programming notes. I'm very pleased to mention that this podcast has been in existence now in some form or another for approximately four years. Um, we recorded our very first episode exactly three weeks after the El Paso Walmart shooting on August 24th, 2019. Uh, I'm not going to claim that the Walmart shooting was the only reason I decided to produce a podcast, but it was definitely one of the primary catalysts for this particular project. And, you know, it's also led me to consider other projects as well. I think it's important to have uh, spaces where we as, as Mexicans, whether we are Mexican Americans or Mexican nationals can have candid conversations about issues that might otherwise not be explored for whatever reason. I'm not going to claim to have conducted an exhaustive system, you know, systematic analysis of all the local or national press coverage related to the El Paso Walmart shooting on its fourth anniversary. But what little coverage I did encounter uh, sort of demonstrated, in my, at least in my opinion, the necessity of having independent or alternative media outlets available. Um, you know, I think if we don't say certain things, no one will. Anyways, um, it seems as if with every passing year, certain features of the attack are no longer being reported or acknowledged. So with that said, let me go ahead and open up the conversation with the following question. What were your impressions of the local media coverage of the fourth anniversary of the shooting? Well, I'll jump on in here. Um, I did think it was very uh touching and emotional to see, um, you know, coverage regarding the memorial and focusing also on um, survivors, testimonials. Um, obviously, right, that was a, a huge part is to acknowledge the people who are still alive, who did live through it and what we've done to rebuild as a, as a community. Um, but I do agree with something that Aldo said um, uh, slightly before we started today and that it just seems that generally speaking, the uh, race factor, the ethnicity factor, the xenophobia um, part of the of what happened has been left out, I think, for the large part. And I think that that's a great travesty in not continuing to have those conversations. Um, if I'm being honest, I think the only place that I saw that part being discussed very bluntly and honestly was at an event at uh, Brave Books, which is a local bookstore here in central El Paso. And the owner of the bookstore, Judd Burgess, invited uh, Gilberto Rosas, who wrote a book called Unsettling the El Paso Massacre, Resurgent White Nationalism and the U.S.-Mexico Border. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. I'm only about midway through it, but I recommend it to all. And so he invited that the author and community members to, to go and have a conversation. And several prominent community leaders, um, Veronica Carvajal, for example, uh, one of my colleagues in the humanities program, Diana Martinez, um, all made uh, pretty powerful statements in, in just reminding us that we can't forget that very big part of this discussion. Following up with what Ruby just said, um, you know, generally the the human aspect of it is very well covered, uh, and and there are pockets of discussion about the dri underlining driving force behind the reason the individual drove 
you know, per hours to target Mexicans somehow gets lost in the overall narrative of the community. And and from my experience, from my perspective, com- coming from across the border, I kind of noticed in El Paso, certain narratives are hidden, kept off the radar. People aren't willing to discuss it. And especially when it comes to the targeting of Mexicans uh, and, and, and in, in, all, in, in several aspects of it. And one of the things I always like to bring up is the name of Bowie High School, which has a very proud uh, alumni, rightfully so, but it kind of forgets the idea that Bowie was named after a very racist individual that was involved in the Alamo. And so those narrows kind of disappear from that history all the way to the current, you know, targeting the Mexicans. And it's, it's a community-wide issue that we're not going to discuss this. Right. I, I'm going to agree with both of you because, you know, and this is all anecdotal, of course. I haven't, you know, conducted any research into this. But when I mentioned that there's rhetoric behind this act a lot of people are like you know what are you talking first of all i don't know if there's even recognition of the fact that uh you know that rhetoric was sort of what inspired this event and it seems that with every passing year this what little recognition there is is continuing to sort of dissipate or wane because when i start explaining to people, well, you know, I think we've had enough time to heal. Um, I understand, you know, I don't mean to be, you know, rush into things or anything, but, you know, we need to continue to acknowledge that it was, you know, political figures like Trump, Abbott, and others who sort of trafficked in this type of rhetoric that are, you know, are directly responsible for what, what happened in August. And I think that the few people who are aware of it, are, you know, uncomfortable discussing it. And when you bring it up at times, you know, you get, I get, I've got mixed reactions when I bring it up. How about you guys? What do you think? Yeah, no, I think we, we have to place the the blame where it belongs. And I, I think that because Trump has done so many wildly preposterous things, I mean, the list is just endless and not just preposterous, but heinous as well. But we can't forget the fact that he is very much largely responsible for influencing Patrick Crucius. The verbiage that Trump used uh, the same year of the shooting was verbatim in the manifesto that Crucius left, right? For example, the quote unquote Hispanic invasion of Texas was referenced by Trump multiple times prior to the shooting. Um, And I actually have a statistic here from 2019 and this is from uh, businessinsider.com. And this is a study that showed that hate crimes increased by 226% in places that Trump held a campaign rally in 2016. And what's really frightening is that we can't forget the fact that Trump came to El Paso for a rally that same year of the shooting. Is that a coincidence? Absolutely not. So we really can't let Trump and the MAGA movement forget that they still have blood on on their hands. They're they're absolutely responsible for 
for those actions because words have power. Words carry so much weight. And when someone is deranged and lacking in any sort of moral compass, as Patrick Crucius hears them, he will do something like the El Paso shooting. And and who's to say when the next deranged person out there is going to act act again? We we don't know. And that's the I think the most terrifying part of all. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point because it's not like they have stopped using this rhetoric. As a matter of fact, I think it's kind of evolved. I know for a long time, there was a lot of, and they continue to discuss the invasion of our country and things like that. But now it's sort of evolved into something even more kind of concerning because now they're talking about direct military action in Mexico. So taking that, the military angle and sort of expanding it, um, if I'm not mistaken, most of the Republican uh, candidates for for the candidates for the Republican nomination for president have all invoked some sort of plan to eventually attack Mexico under certain circumstances. Uh, you know, sometimes they mention a caveat about cooperating with the Mexican government on you know attacking cartels, but many of them are just you know claiming they're going to attack Mexico unilaterally if necessary. Well, and and that's part of the the national narrative and the political narrative, and and that's very important. Uh, but they're narratives, and, and they're they're very negative and hurtful narratives. But when a politician, no matter who it is, says that they're going to invade Mexico, that is a a, a language of politics because they themselves and and most people that know anything about the geopolitics of of the region of North America, which is Canada, Mexico, and the United States, understands that the United States can never invade Mexico. It's not even bombing or, or deploying drones. It's not that they don't have a military capability, but there's the geopolitical and more importantly, the economic situation that impedes that. Uh, Mexico is one of the largest, if not the largest, trader with the United States. I mean, most of what we call La Línea Blanca, which is the, the appliances and stuff, come from Mexico. A lot of the cars come from Mexico. As soon as you end that, the American economy will suffer. So militarily, yes, there's no no question about that. But economically, that it can never happen because once those borders are closed, the economy suffers. And that's why Donald Trump, as much as he tried to get Mexico to pay for the wall, which is, you know, an, a, another, you know, rhetoric, uh, and, and close the borders and do what he did, he never could get the Republican Party behind him. Uh, even even in, uh, immigration, you know, reform and stuff, he could never get the, Re- the Republican Party behind him for the simple reason of the economy. So the narratives are there. They exist. They're very hurtful. But we as Latinos, and I I include everybody, Mexicanos and everybody else, we remain on the sidelines. We remain silent, except for a few people like you guys. We don't really engage to to say, hey, enough is enough. No, absolutely, Martin. Mm -hmm. The Republicans know that this is what's going to kind of rally the, the MAGA base behind them. They like things like the wall and invasion, this type of rhetoric. And I think they themselves understand because they'll walk back these comments about invading Mexico and stuff like, you know, attacking Mexico unilaterally. They'll walk them back and apply their statements at some point. But when they're talking directly to the rabid MAGA base, they don't mention all of these 
qualifications. You know, they're just like, we're going to attack Mexico. We're going to do, we're going to take out the cartels, whether the Mexican government approves of it or not. And, and I, and I've called it this before. I, I believe it's a form of stochastic terrorism where you demonize a group and you pull this rhetoric and eventually somebody who's unsound uh, is going to kind of tune into this and take action on their own. And that's what we saw on August 3rd, 2019. They were, you know, kind of trafficking in this rhetoric. There was one person who, you know, for whatever reason, decided he needed to take action based on this rhetoric. And then we had a tragedy unfold as a result. And that's something that we should all, as as Mexican-Americans, as, as Mexicanos, we should be concerned about because when they're complaining about Mexico, what they're doing is complaining about all of us. And who knows if somebody heeds the call to go to war with Mexico and shows up here again and does some, something else, you know? So um, although we recognize this performative, and I think even the politicians who are trafficking in this rhetoric recognize that it's performative, I think that you we there's a risk when you use this type of rhetoric and and like you were saying Martin, I think it's the Latinos themselves who need to stand up and uh insist that this rhetoric be be stopped. And and, and that's an excellent point, uh Aldo, but I think that although Trump normalized the language that we're hearing now, the language of invading Mexico, bombing Mexico has existed since the 70s. It has been part of the underground narrative that has always existed. Trump normalized it. Trump put it in a larger audience, but it has always existed. And, and I'll give you a great example. Um, you know, what, what in, on the border region, what was the common reference to Mexicanos from Juarez is I get little fronchies or a fronchies this or a fronchies that or, or, or taxes are high because of the Mexicanos crossing the border, you know, as undocumented. Of course, they used to work illegally, but, you know, they're undocumented. There was always the blame from the southern border where the, you know, the, the, the El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, Region is economically married to each other, and you cannot have El Paso without the economy of Juarez and vice versa. Yet you have that narrative that has always existed; it's just been hidden until now. So, it, in one way, Trump has brought it to the surface. But the fact remains that Latinos, in general, know the rhetoric exists, participates in it, but nobody sits back and says. Hey, this is the the problem. This is what the conversation is, and is it right or is it wrong? And and I and we circle back to Jim Crucius. He targeted Mexicans. That was his target. And how many people that are Paso acknowledge that discussion today? Exactly, and that's one of absolutely, Martin. And that's one of my points. I think that many. El Pasoans of Mexican descent, whether they're Mexican-Americans or are Mexican nationals, just simply don't want to acknowledge that fact and don't want to talk about it anymore. And um, I've gotten a lot of pushback, to be honest with you. I've been kind of admonished not to politicize the event and, you know, uh, you know, stop trying to blame these people for something that the gunman was solely responsible for. I don't know what kind of conversations you guys have had with people locally, but one of my concerns about the narrative is that this feature 
of the attack, this very relevant feature of the attack is going to just sort of go away eventually. It seems that with every passing year, people are unwilling, you know, more and more willing to just forget it. And I think it's up to us to make sure that, you know, people like us uh, to make sure that this that doesn't happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We we can't let people forget um, that this wasn't just uh, an issue of, of you know, immigration um uh, squabbles. This, this was absolutely race. This was, um, and, and like Martin brought up, we have to be honest with the racism that even occurs within our own Latino community, which is so incredibly bizarre to me. Um, I think something that I've really become disheartened with in just the last, you know, year or so, because it seems to be more rampant, um, is just how many people who are, you know, brown skin, black hair, last name, like, you know, Rodriguez or Gutierrez, and just have zero compassion for, for example, Venezuelan immigrants, um, almost like a, like a disdain and a, a, an othering and seeing them as less than human. And to me, that is just so incredibly, not only bizarre, like I said, but heartbreaking. Because if if we as Latinos do not stand together, if we're not united in recognizing that we need to to be unified, right? It's just it's just going to be used against us. Our our inability to come together and stand with our fellow Latinos, whether they are from Juarez or from El Paso or from Venezuela. Um, you know, we, we, we need to show solidarity and support for one another. Otherwise um, we're, we're weakened. Ruby, I have a question. For you. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of the politicians uh, that use inflammatory language have been wrapping themselves in the First Amendment. And uh, I, I know you know uh, a little bit more of the, the technical philosophical approaches as to why this does not apply. You know, the there is a protection of political speech. Uh, and yet th this might be crossing the line into unprotected speech is there any way to sort of unravel this knot? Yeah, you know, there's um, this is a conversation I have with my students when we do discuss uh, free speech. Um, there's a really interesting uh, take on on this issue by a philosopher by the name of Karl Popper. And he describes something that is called the paradox of tolerance. In other words, we as a tolerant society do not have any obligations to tolerate those who are intolerant. So it does sound very paradoxical, right? Because if we are tolerant, shouldn't we be open to everyone's views? No, the answer is absolutely not. Because when we do extend tolerance to those who are intolerant, what happens? Well, then tolerance ends up being destroyed, as does those who extended it in the first place. 
We can look at several examples throughout history. We can go to 1940s Germany and look what Hitler did. We can apply it to this issue that we're talking about today. We don't have an obligation to tolerate those people who are intolerant. We, we simply don't. There was, yes, someone may have freedom of speech, but that doesn't mean that they're, they are free from consequences. There's a very big distinction that needs to be, be made. I hate to um, disagree with you, Ruby, on this with all the respect. And, and coming from an online publication, um, my biggest issue has been censorship. And, and the problem with censorship is who is the censor? Who will determine what's acceptable speech and what is not acceptable speech? And I'll be the very first one to say that it's very difficult to say or to regulate it and control it. The problem lies in this, and, and I use the internet as an example. Prior to the internet, the person that was read, understood, they got to express an opinion and, and write was the person who could afford to be an author full-time, write books. And the people that learned from those books were the people that could afford the books. Although their public library, the reach was not as significant. I believe the internet created uh, a somewhat equalizing level because anybody can be a publisher. Now, there's technical issues of, of reach and stuff like that I won't get into right now, but it's much easier now to be able to express your personal opinion regardless of what it is, and, and it, it and covers all sides of the spectrum, but you have the ability to be able to have a voice. Whereas I think prior to the internet, it was much harder to have a voice because who wrote the books? The people that could afford to write the books. Who got published? The people who had access uh, to, you know, which was either educational or economic, to get their books published. And so starting at that level, I, then I questioned, okay, and, and, I, and I face this regularly, at what point do we censor someone's speech because we happen to disagree with it? And then that leads to the question of who makes that determination? And, and that's why I have a problem with regulating speech. And, and again, it, there's no solution and I don't have one for it, but I do get a heartache about censorship and, and regulating speech. Yeah, I, I absolutely see your point. And I, and I do agree with you, Martin. Um, however, I do think that we need to recognize that when speech, for example, is so hateful that it drives people to not only other people, but then to totalize them, to kill them, to literally take their lives and their freedoms their autonomy, I think that's when censorship is morally justified. Um, obviously, it's difficult to decide who's going to be doing the censoring. Um, but I do think that, for example, when a neo-Nazi gets uh, you know, caught in a viral video spewing his white supremacist views, and then he later cries because he lost his job. Um, well, again, that's just too bad. Uh, he had the right to spew his views. But we don't have that obligation to tolerate his views. And so I, I, I still stand by my, my comment in the sense that we don't have a moral obligation to tolerate anyone who is intolerant. I'm certainly not calling for censorship, um, but I don't think that we as a society have that obligation to tolerate any sort of hatred or intolerance. 
And, and you're absolutely correct, Ruby, and I think you just offered the solution to it. And, and I think this brings us back to what Aldo started in the very beginning, which is the discussion about the narrative of killing and targeting Mexicans. It kind of gets buried along, you know, as, as more years pass. And, and your example was right on, um, um, was exactly right. He's crying about losing his job after spewing the hateful rhetoric. And therein, I think, lies the prior solution, not the overall solution, but therein lies the solution in that we as a community, whether we're Guanos uh, or, or, you know, Venezolanos or wherever we're from, we don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to vote the same way. But when it comes to targeting us as Latinos or Hispanics, whatever we want to call ourselves, we need to get up and say enough is enough. And I think that's where the solution lies. And unfortunately, that's, I think, where we're missing the boat. Because if enough of us rise up and say this is wrong, then I think the solution builds itself from that point. Absolutely. Yes. I know in some cases the prospect of censoring someone might be uh, kind of kind of complicated, but I definitely think that tolerance, you know, we don't have to tolerate somebody by, you know, just allowing them to spew whatever they're going to say. Right. And so sometimes opposition, which is short of censorship, is in order. And I think that the time is now for Mexican-Americans, Latinos, whoever, to join up in unison and sort of condemn this type of rhetoric. One of the things you you mentioned, Martin, is that, you know, there's there's this larger Latino population. There are those amongst us who believe that, boy, by the time, you know, getting a consensus among this group is virtually impossible. I think even getting a consensus among Mexican-Americans is is difficult, even with, with issues that seem clear cut. And I think we need to now attempt to get Mexican-Americans to understand this rhetoric and how it lead to problems and hopefully take a united stance against it. Uh, there are very few Republican uh, congressional representatives who have actually denounced it. I think uh, there's uh, Dallas, for example. I know he has actually stepped in and condemned the Republican in, in a meek sort of a way, but it's art, right? Um, I wouldn't hold my breath, though. You know, waiting for them to to sort of step in and, and actually make some sort of uh, definitive statement on that. You, know, you have freedom of speech, but you do not have freedom from the consequences of your speech. And so I can I may be free to say certain things, but there's nothing that can shield me from being terminated for saying those things or if you're a politician from facing repercussions for for whatever you happen to be espousing. Well, that, I agree on the censorship issue, and I think you're you're right on the money. Although, is it that you know uh, there's the issue of of you know repercussions? Yes, you have a right to say whatever you want to. For example, uh, I can write whatever I want to, but the repercussions are uh, assuming there are no legal repercussions, and I and I protect myself. There's still the economic repercussions in that if people don't enough people don't like what I write. Number one, they don't read it. Number two. There could get pushback, you know, even leading to to customers of mine and stuff like that. So I think that censorship and and, and freedom of speech is self uh, protecting if we allow it to self protect itself. I think uh, there's too much fear of allowing, you know, too many people freedom of 
you know, discussion and speech and stuff. And it's dangerous. I'm, I'm not minimizing the danger behind it. But, you know, I think that if we focus too much on censoring and limiting speech, then it becomes a slippery slope. And uh, and I hope I apologize in advance, but I think I want to extend this a little further than the censorship uh, to bring up one very important example. We keep discussing the Republicans, and and the Republicans, for obvious reasons, are the ones that are pushing the hateful narrative right now. But as a Mexican citizen, I do not vote so in the United States, so I don't really technically have a horse in the race. So to me, it's not about party politics, but listening to of most individuals in the communities across the nation, we kind of, we tend to give Democrats a pass. But here's a, a very important thing that I don't think a lot of people realize. The last for substantial immigration reform towards Mexicanos, since we're discussing Mexicanos right now, is Ronald Reagan. But people tend to forget that. The most draconian immigration reform has been from the Democrats. And so while we have narratives like that that are ignored and not discussed openly, we kind of get lost in all the noise of the other stuff. And so I want you to bring that up as an example of so many moving pieces behind the narratives that are never discussed. And, and it's our own fault because we don't want to discuss it. We kind of just want to ignore it. No, very interesting point. Um, to be accurate, I think Democratic Senator, I don't know if you can still call him a Democratic Senator, but Joe Manchin from West Virginia, he's actually one of those people who has proposed some type of direct military. I don't know if he's proposed unilateral military action, but I know he has uh, proposed military action, direct military action in Mexico. So to your point, Martin, uh, it's not just Republicans. There are a few, like I said, I'm not sure Democrat is a, a word I would use to describe Senator Joe Manchin at this point, but technically I guess he is a Democratic senator. Um, but that's a very interesting point. Do you guys know who the first politician that built the wall uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border was? It was Silvestre Reyes. That's where right. the building mm -hmm. of the walls and the barriers got started. And that's what made him a congressman. And since as Democrats, right. you can get them. No, I, I good, excellent example, because, you know, we could probably, maybe we should um, spend uh, an entire podcast episode discussing Sylvester Reyes, because he, he's an interesting case. You're absolutely right. Anecdotal information, um, he he's made a number of controversial comments about uh, El Paso and and certain other things, which uh, and actually he was what was his policy? Stand the line or something like that. Hold the line. Yeah, it, it was that. There you go. That's it. Hold the line. Yeah, that's a, an excellent example, and I think it ties into that sort of bizarre, almost like self-loathing that I was describing earlier with the with Latinos. Like they forget their roots, and they they feel this sense of. Um, uh, superiority because they happen to be born on this side of the border. And I think he's a, just a prime example of that. Um, so I, I'd be all for an episode dedicated to, to Reyes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, that's a, a very expansive, but interesting topic that we should definitely look into one of these days. Um, good, good points from everyone. Very interesting. Um, 
So as far as the, you know, Martin, just go back to something. Um, you wrote a very interesting article about local coverage of the uh, fourth anniversary of the Walmart shooting. And what were your what were some of the things that you you've kind of brought to the surface there about the local coverage? The local coverage was basically the human aspect, which is very important. But I noticed that, and and i you're the one that brought it up, is that the the reason, the underlying reason that Crucius drove what was it, ten hours, six hundred miles, was to target Mexicanos. It was not forget any the you know the politics behind it. Forget what was driving him. It was to target Mexicanos. And I've noticed this. And obviously, in the national media, that's ignored often. In the local media, what surprises me, that was pretty much ignored. I could not find any, you know, there might have been one or two small, you know, mentions of it. But nobody's really talking about what he did. He targeted Mexicanos. You know, the the, the German victim, you know, people were talking about, especially in the German community and stuff. But in general, the targeting of Mexicanos, in my perspective, was completely ignored. And that's bothersome uh, and troublesome because we're ignoring that fact. And as long as we let that happen, it's going to happen again, unfortunately. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to claim to have conducted some sort of systematic, exhaustive analysis of all the local or national press coverage. But even at the national level, very few articles. At one point, there were quite a few articles discussing the connection between the rhetoric and the actual act. Uh, uh, this time around, very few at the national level. I watch MSNBC religiously. I don't think they even mentioned it. I was a little surprised that even in so-called you know liberal media outlets, there was very little coverage of that. Because I think there's an obvious connection to the uh, the rhetoric that led to this and the the type of rhetoric you're seeing kind of prevail uh, currently with the Republican Party. I don't know if you guys caught the the uh, Republican debate the other day, but they devoted a good portion of the episode to discussing what they would do <laughs> should they be elected uh, and you know what their plans for attack were on, on Mexico should they be elected. Interesting. At this point, we're going to go ahead and leave the conversation there. It was a very interesting conversation. I think we could probably continue it, and maybe we will. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for participating today. I think that in the absence of actual or other media outlets covering these types of issues, it's going to ultimately be incumbent upon people like us. I mean, we all have day jobs. Um, we're all very busy, but I think this highlights the need for uh, and the importance of community journalism at a time when, you know, you have the Texas Tribune, for example, laying off a number of reporters, the Los Angeles Times. Um, I think what uh, this latest wave of coverage reveals is the uh, importance of community journalists like ourselves. We're all very busy, but if we don't say these things, who's going to say them, right? Uh, anyways, guys, thanks again. Any closing thoughts? Just want to say it's nice to be back and and thanks for uh, having us and, and, and just stressing the importance of these kinds of conversations. So, so thanks.
If I want to start then, Ruby, uh, thank you very much. This is very, uh, I, I think it's very beneficial. And I think that, that this is something the community in general, Latino community needs more of this type of conversation. So I appreciate the invitation. Thank you, Martin. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Vanguard Elements. You've been listening to Vanguard Elements, El Paso's progressive Mexican-American voice. Vanguard Elements is produced by Mexican-Americans in solidarity with Mexico, a nonprofit organization devoted to promoting solidarity and strategic cooperation between elements of the Mexican-American community and Mexican civil society. For additional information about our organization, you can follow us on Twitter at Solidarity, W-M-E-X, or visit our website at SolidarityWithMexico.org. Thank you for supporting independent community media. This has been El Paso Talks, a podcast about El Paso delivered to you by the voices of your neighbors, your friends, your family, and even yourself. If you haven't already, like, subscribe and rate our podcast. El Paso Talks is produced by El Paso News. The opinions expressed are those of the individual delivering the episode and may not necessarily represent the views of El Paso News or the other podcasters on El Paso Talks. Find us at elpasonews.org. See you in the next episode.